word loyalty is not one we use too often when talking about the modern day footballer. But my guest today spent his entire professional career at one club and he became their greatest ever. To this day, he remains one of the most talented players to ever grace the Premier League and also becoming the first midfielder to reach 100 goals. With his eye for the spectacular, his sole purpose was to entertain his adoring fans. And he did just that. It is my pleasure to welcome today, Matt Letissier. Okay, so Matt, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me. Let's jump right into it and let's go back to the beginning. Uh, tell us a little bit about growing up in Guernsey. Yeah, I mean, I was born into a, a very sporty family. So I was the youngest of four boys. Uh, my three big brothers were all um, very good at football. My dad was was very good at football. Um, and I had some uncles as well who were also, you know, of a, of a very high standard. So uh, the, the DNA was good. I had a, a real good chance. And, and yeah, I, I, from the age of well, very, very young, I've got this video footage of me at kind of two and three years old dribbling a football around. And uh, it just felt like my entire childhood was just revolved around sport, basically. Okay, so you always loved football. Uh, did you have any childhood heroes? Yeah, um, Glenn Hoddle um, was my hero as a kid. I, I just loved the way that he played football. He just made it look so effortless uh, and some of the stuff that, that he could do on a football pitch that, you know, the majority of other players couldn't do just made me sit up and take notice and think, um, you know, I want to be like that. I want to I want to try and be a little bit different to everyone else. Okay, so at what point did, you know, this childhood dream that many of us have had, uh, did it go from this to an actual real possibility that you could have a life and a career in football? Um, I think I always wanted, I think I always wanted to be a footballer. I can remember from about the age of eight, really. Um, I just felt like I was, I had an ability there that was much better than all my mates, everyone else that I played against. Um so I kind of knew early on that I, I, I'd been given a gift, uh, if you like. Uh, and so I think when that started to become a reality, I, had a, I actually had a trial at Oxford uh, first before I went to Southampton. In fact, I moved, I moved to live in Oxford when I was uh, just 14, I think. I didn't enjoy it. And after a few weeks, I went back to Guernsey yeah. and finished my schooling there. Um, uh, but I also knew that, that Southampton were interested and I'd had a, a trial lined up at Southampton as well. So, um, so yeah, the, the trial at Southampton went well, and they allowed me to to just continue training in the school holidays and let me finish my education in Guernsey, which suited me perfectly. Uh, you know, it all happened quite fast for you, and you were really, really young, sixteen years of age, into the reserve team or the youth team. Sorry, into the youth team. Am I right in thinking? In your first season, you scored fifty nine goals. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we we won the uh, we won the league pretty comfortably that year um, and we our team scored a lot of goals we had a, we had a really good team um, you know it was the, the South East Counties League Division 2 um, so we were kind of beating teams I mean I can remember quite a few games where, where it was sixes and, and sevens were scored um, and yeah I was I was lucky enough to be on the end of quite a few of those chances so so what's the most goals you've ever scored in one game then I scored six against Brighton, I think it was. Um, that was the most in, in one of my youth team games. Uh, previously, back in Guernsey, um, I'd scored 11 in one game in a 21-0 win. 
uh, <laughs> which uh, sticks in my mind to this day. But yeah, six, I think, was the, the most in a youth team game. Incredible. Okay, so obviously this was enough to uh, bring you to the attention of the first team coaches. Uh, is that what it was, that the 59 goals um, propelled you into the first team? Is that right? Yeah, uh, well, Dave Merrington, who was the, the youth team coach at Southampton at that time, was, um, uh, he had a lot of belief in me and I think he was he was the one knocking on the door of the manager uh, and saying to him, you need to get this boy in the, in the first team squad, you need to get him in the team because you know, he's got something that, that most people haven't. Uh, and so, you know, I'll, I'll always be eternally grateful to Dave for for fighting my corner for me, um, uh, because you know, as a as a seventeen year old, you, it's not really the done thing to go knocking on the on the manager's door at a football club and go, "Oi, come on, <laughs> live it up, get me in the team. I'm better than these old kids who are playing." Well, I have to say, I mean, my earliest memory of you, you first came to my attention when I remember it was an early game of the Premier League. Uh, it was live on Sky uh, against Newcastle. And you scored two absolutely beautiful goals, spectacular goals. Talk us through your memories uh, of this game. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that was a, a big moment for me in my career, actually, because um, I mentioned Ian Bramford earlier on. Well, um, I'd actually been dropped for the previous four or five games leading up to that Newcastle game. And I was brought back into the team for that game live on Sky. And it was kind of a chance for me to to kind of re-establish myself you know I'd, um, my, my career had kind of been going the wrong way for a couple of years under under Ian Bramford you know I'd won the young player of the year in 1990 I'd yeah. scored 23 goals in 1991 and then Ian came in and my goal output kind of went down uh, my enjoyment of football was going down and you know he, he dropped me from the team so it was a it was a tough period uh, and so he brought me back for that game and um, and yeah, I, I managed to score that goal. And I think I was just about to be substituted. You know, <laughs> I wasn't having a particularly great game. Uh, I wasn't any worse than anyone else. I didn't think, but um, but there was a, uh, the guy that had taken my place for the previous four or five games was warming up on the touchline, and I, uh, I didn't realise this at the time. It was only when I saw the TV footage afterwards uh, uh -huh. when I scored the first goal, where I flick it over the two defenders. Uh -huh. um, the, the camera panned to me and then it pans to the bench and the, and the picture is of Ian Bramford uh, on the bench and he's hardly, he, I don't think he's even smiling. Uh, you know, I've just scored this, this great goal. He can't bring himself to, to smile. Uh, okay. But all you can see is him turning to the substitute, Paul Moody it was, um, and I could lip read him and he, and he just looked at the sub and he went, sit down, Moods. <laughs> I can't take him off now. He's just done that. The timing of it was pretty crucial, considering what what then kind of led on from that. You know, I scored the the winning goal in that game as well, which was pretty decent. Oh come on now, decent! I think you're being a little bit too modest there. Now I remember this second goal, and you know what? I just always loved it. Um, I for the spectacular game, but it was that first touch off the tie, and then boom! And you made it look so easy. The, the first touch is, is kind of what made it. The, the touch off the thigh just sets it up nicely for a, for a perfect volley and uh, kind of just re-injected a lot of more confidence and self-belief into me. And, and I went on a, on a really good run, you know, be, being captain of the team. I think it was Ian Bradford's way of trying to get the fans on side and to try to, uh, to stop himself from getting the sack. I find that really interesting because you're talking about um, being on such a downer and not enjoying your football before this. And the incredible thing is the season before, you were crowned the PFA Young Player of the Year, which is like this huge accolade voted by your peers. Um, 
So it's amazing to think you went from such a downer, not really playing, not being in the team, and then this game seemed to almost totally change your season and, and change your career in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I say, the, the, the season after that, um, I followed that up with, with 23 goals. I got 24 the season I won Young Player of the Year. I scored 23 the following season, which was pretty good. And then and then Chris Nickel got sacked. Um, and that's when it all kind of started going a little bit pear-shaped. Wow. Uh, uh, but but I did you know that that Newcastle game was a real massive turning. But not only were the goals really nice, it it was everything that kind of led up to that game, and then what followed on from it. When I look back, that was a massive turning point in my career. Uh, the appointment of Alan Ball as Southampton manager. Now here's a guy that came in, World Cup winner, so he had this huge reputation. Um, but he he made you his main guy. He built the team around you, and you know. How did this feel? Was it huge pressure on your shoulders? Did you feel the pressure or was it, in a way, the ultimate compliment and bring the best out of you? I think, I think the second bit, I think it was the ultimate com compliment for me. I mean, I'd, I'd spent a, two and a half years under a, a guy called Ian Bramford, who was manager at Southampton, whose idea of how football should be played was very different to how I thought it should be played. Um, you know, he was very much a route one, set piece kind of guy. Uh, and it didn't really suit the way that I wanted to to be involved in football. So it was a tough couple of years playing under him. It wasn't particularly enjoyable. Um, and then all of a sudden, this this guy comes in who has won the World Cup, um, who wants to play football by passing it on the ground for a start. Um, and he then pretty much built the team around me and told everyone else in the team that you know I was the best player and that. The, their first objective when they get the ball is can I pass it to Matt Letizier because he's our best player and he can make things happen and, and that for me was just a, an incredible boost of confidence um, and I didn't really see it as pressure um, and that's kind of why that, that next 18 months while he was my manager were just the, the best 18 months of my career, the happiest, you know, I played my best football, I scored my best goals um, and I was just in, incredibly happy. Uh, normally when I have a footballer coming on you know, do some research, uh, check out their, their best goals and maybe talk about them. For you, it was actually quite the opposite. I found it very, very hard to find a goal that was simply a tap-in. Uh, all of your goals seem to be a, a spectacular effort from long range. In fact, I think the closest you ever came to a tap-in was, was a penalty kick. And that's a different story because you've had an incredible uh, ratio of penalty kicks, 47 successful spot kicks from 48 taken incredible record but from your list of goals uh, we all have our personal favorites I'm curious do you have your own personal favorite uh, I, I do have a couple um, I, the goal that I feel technically is my best goal was when I scored at, at Blackburn um, from 35 yards past uh, my old teammate Tim Flowers um, that's always kind of stood out as one that I've I, I'm really quite proud of the goal um, Sadly, we lost the game that day, so it kind of <laughs> a bit disappointed that it counted for nothing. Um, but in terms of, of the technical strike and what I was trying to do with that ball and, and the ball going exactly where I was aiming it and exactly the trajectory I wanted, um, that was an incredibly satisfying goal for me. You know, I, I practiced that yeah. shot a lot in training um, in, the, in the weeks leading up to that. And so it was nice to see it come off. Now, I heard a story about this, actually. So maybe you can tell me if this is true. Because I know Tim is a mate of yours, so is it true that in the tunnel before the game you placed a bet? Um, he said there's no way he would score one of your goals, spectacular goals past him. Is that right? 
I don't I don't recall having a bet against him. There, there was a story going around that that, uh, that Tim always hung a towel up in the side netting of his goal. Okay. Uh, uh, and uh, I've heard this. A few people have come up to me and said, "I, I heard a story that you told him that you were going to hit the towel." <laughs> uh, and it, when you see the shot, uh, it, it does hit the towel. But I, I don't remember specifically saying to him uh, that I was going to hit the towel. But he did have. Uh, we did have this this running thing between us. When he left, he actually said to me, um, "When he left, he went, you'll never score past me.'" I'd scored actually the previous season past him, but it was a penalty. And when I confronted him and, and I said to him, you know, I didn't think I was going to score past you, he kind of just turned around and went, oh, penalties don't count. So, uh, so yeah, when I scored that one at, at Ewood, I then uh, I then said to him, well, if penalties don't count, what about that? <laughs> but, but he still had a smart comment to say even after this goal, didn't he? He did, yeah. He just looked at me and he went, how many points did you get today? And we got <laughs> the answer to, because as I said, we, we lost the game. Okay, so let's talk about another goal then obviously means an awful lot to you personally. Um, the last season ever at the Dell, the last game ever at the, at the Dell. So just to give a little bit of background, um, you know, one of the oldest football stadiums in England, uh, Southampton played there for over 100 years. Uh, a lot of history to the ground, even outside of football. I know in 1928-29 season, there was a, a fire uh, that destroyed the entire West Stand, which uh, started with a, a cigarette, something as simple as this a bomb landed in the ground and creating an 18-foot crater in the penalty area. So uh, a lot of history outside of football and in football as well, of course. Um, but also, I came across a, a fact, an interesting fact recently. I don't know if you're aware of this. Southampton, the Dell, became the first English football stadium ever to have installed permanent floodlights. Did you know this? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so in the dying minutes of the game, it's 2-2, Southampton and Arsenal, an incredibly strong Arsenal team. Um, talk us through what, what happened after this. Yeah, I mean, again, the, the events leading up to it were all, were all pretty bizarre. You know, I'd had, um, I was getting on a little bit at this point. Uh, I think I was 32 now. Um, and injuries had started taking their toll on me. Uh, I hadn't scored a Premier League goal the whole season. Oh really? I wasn't aware of this. Okay. Yeah. So this was my only, my only Premier League goal that season, which you know I spent a lot of time injured. Uh, I think I scored a goal in the League Cup against somebody, um, mm -hmm. but that was it. And and I would been injured kind of leading up towards that game, and I just kind of got back to training with the lads. Uh, I wasn't anywhere near you know 100% fit. Uh, and Stuart Gray, who was the manager at the time, came up to me on the Tuesday before the the game at the weekend, and he just said to me, "Look," he said. I know you, you, you're probably not 100% fit, he said, but I think on the weekend, I think it's only right that when that final whistle goes, uh, you and not just me, but me and Franny Benali, he said, for what you two have done for the football club, he said, I think it's only right that you two should be on the pitch at the end. So you're going to be on the bench on the weekend. And I guarantee you, you will be on the pitch when that final whistle blows because what you've done for the football club, you deserve to be there, uh, which was lovely. And it was nice that there's still a little bit of room for... Well, there was still a little bit of room for sentiment in football. Um, and then from that moment on, every night I went, I, my, my whole thought from that moment on was, I want to be the bloke that scores the last goal at the Dell. I want to have that accolade. Um, and I went to bed every night from that Tuesday onwards, just dreaming of how I was going to score the last goal at the Dell and all the sorts of different scenarios that might crop up. 
and how it was going to be me that scores that final goal. Um, and so, yeah, when the, when the chance dropped for me in the last minute, uh, it wasn't a particularly easy chance. It didn't matter how difficult the chance was. I just needed a chance because I knew that no matter what the degree of difficulty was, I knew I was going to score. Um, and so as soon as it left my boot, I, I had no doubt where it was going. It was just, it was just incredible. And the, the most amazing feeling to just see the, the net bulge, the crowd, the roar of the crowd was just incredible. Um, and then just wheeling away. My son and my dad were up in the stand. Just a, a moment in my life that will just live with me to my dying day. I mean, it really was Roy of the Rover stuff. You know, if there was movie scripts, people would criticise it for being too far-fetched. Um, it was just one of those moments that you feel was just written in the stars. And to even add to the occasion, what was incredible about it was it was your 100th goal for the club. The last goal at the stadium and your 100th goal for Southampton. That is, uh, that is true now. Um, however, at the time, um, I thought it was my 101st. Oh, really? Yeah. So if, if you... Um, I scored a penalty against Sunderland um, the, the previous season. And at the time, most people thought that was my 100th Premier League goal. And I thought it was my 100th Premier League goal. I didn't realise that the uh, dubious goals panel had apparently taken a goal off of me in the 94-95 season. And I didn't, I didn't realise they'd taken it off me. So I, in Southampton Football Club records, uh, that goal is still mine. So okay. uh, uh, in the history books of Southampton, uh, I've scored 101 Premier League goals, but the Premier League tell me I've only scored 100. That there was a lovely moment actually after the game when you were being interviewed on the pitch. And I remember, um, you know, they were asking you what it felt like to just score the last goal at the stadium. And I loved your answer actually, because you were saying they were talking like it was the end of an era. And you said, well, I don't see any reason why I can't be the first goal scorer at the new stadium. Looking back, because I know the following season, you, you had a lot of injuries and you missed a lot of game time. Looking back, was that the ideal moment to retire? Or was your plan you simply wanted to play on for as long as you possibly could? Um, uh, I think looking back, it would have been the perfect way to retire. Um, the, there's no question about that. But uh, at that point, I, I still thought, you know, I, I could have, I've still offered something to the team. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I did. I, I, the following season, pre-season had gone okay. And I actually did play in the first game at the at the new stadium. It was a friendly game, and uh, and I did after about I think it was about ten minutes. I had an absolute sitter. I miss. I completely miss hit my shot, like from about six yards with my left foot, and that and the chance to score the first goal in the new stadium had gone. Um, and then I got injured in between. So that was like a week before the season started, and then I got injured about a few days after that, just a few days before the season started. So then I didn't play and I never had the chance to score the first competitive goal in that yeah. stadium. And what's fascinating about that, you're talking about um, you were visualising this moment happening. You wanted to be the last goal scorer ever at the Dell. Um, it's incredible the confidence you had in that happening because, as you said, it was your first and only goal of the entire season because you had a lot of injuries. Um, so, you know, did you always have this, you'd hear about athletes talking about the power of visualisation. Is this something that is important to you? Is it just something that comes natural? I actually kind of remember, even as a kid, having 
having the ability to do that, the, the ability to visualize. You know, I, I um, when I used to watch my brothers play, so um, we had a at the football club where we were all at. There was the main pitch, and then behind the main pitch was a was a smaller pitch where we used to where the training used to happen. Uh, and I can remember going and, and watch my brothers play, and um, and whenever they were playing, I'd go and take myself down onto the training pitch, and I wouldn't really watch them play. I'd watch a bit, and then I'd go and take a ball, even on my own. Um, and I can remember just trying different things. And and this one, I remember this one drill I used to do where I used to get the ball in my hands. I'd be about I don't know twenty five yards from goal, and I would just punt the ball as high as I possibly could. And then at that moment, I'd imagine that the ball was coming down out the air and I needed to take a great first touch and I'll be through one-on-one with the goalkeeper. So I would punt the ball as high as I could. As it's coming down, I'd really concentrate on my first touch, making sure it was in the right place. And I used to do this for, for ages. And once I'd taken that touch, I'd pretend there was a goalie there. I'd dribble around him and I'd pop the ball in the net. And, and I, I just remember doing that for ages and ages. And then one day... We played against Aston Villa. It was the, the, our last home game in the season, the 93-94 season. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd been struggling all season. It was the, the season that Alan Ball took over. Um, and, you know, we were up against it. We were, we were looking like we were going to get relegated for a large part of that season. And the last home game at, the, at the, the Dell that season, I think we were a couple of goals ahead. And the ball gets cleared out from the Villa box. Franny Benali comes onto it in the, in the centre circle and he punts the ball way up in the air. Just a just a big clearance, and it's hoofed up, and and so I'm now looking at this ball, and it's coming down, and I'm thinking, wow, if I, if I can get control of this, I'm one on one with the goalkeeper here, and so this ball is coming down over my shoulder, and I take a touch, and it's the most perfect touch. The keeper doesn't the keep the touch is that good. The keeper can't come and tackle me, so I've taken my touch. He's in no man's land. I take the ball round him, and I slip the ball into the into the goal. And uh, and we ended up winning the game. I think it was four four one, and I scored a couple that day. But I can remember sitting in the bath after that game and thinking about that goal. And I can remember sat there thinking, all that practice as a kid has just paid off because exactly. what exactly I was practicing fifteen twenty years ago, a Premier League game, and it was like I'd already been there. I've I've done that. I know what's okay. going to happen here. So when the ball okay. was dropping out the sky. I knew that I could control it and I knew where, where I could put the ball and I knew I was going to score. It was an amazing feeling. I'd, li- I'd like to talk for a second about your international career, Matt. Um, so I remember one of your early games for England uh, was a friendly at Lansdowne Road against uh, Republic of Ireland. Um, so it's a game probably with bittersweet memories for you. It's a game we'd certainly rather forget because of, of what happened, the game being abandoned. Um, talk us through that was quite scary to look at on television so if you could talk us through your memories of this occasion uh, as a player on the pitch on the night but yeah the, the, obviously that evening was a was one that um, turned turned pretty sour I think we were 1-0 down um, uh, and it, it hadn't started particularly well for me that, that day I mean the, the Irish team were, were probably you know, the better team for that first 25 minutes anyway and it was a bit of a struggle and then obviously the, the crowd trouble happened and it, was, it got quite scary if I'm honest it, uh, it wasn't a very very nice atmosphere at all but I think it was probably the only time in my career where I, where I felt frightened at a football ground yeah uh, it, it really was and uh, and it wasn't something that was was particularly pleasant so yeah I think the disappointing part for me after that is that um, the following month I think it was when the next squad the next England squad was announced 
Um, I wasn't even in the squad. So, so I'd gone from being in the team one month, playing 27 minutes, and then the next squad comes along and I'm not even in the squad. And I, and I look back and I think, geez, I must have been really crap for that 27 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Terry Venables brought you in for England. Now, I know that. And you, you missed out on the Euro 96 squad, which was a shame. But I always felt at France 98 for the World Cup, this was your moment. You, you had to get into the squad. Um, and Glenn Hoddle left you out. Now, I was very, very surprised by this. I'm going to say something now and, and see what you think of this. But just from the outside looking in, I couldn't help but wonder if there was some kind of personal issue there between you and Glenn as to why you were left out. Because on talent and uh, performance alone, um, how you were playing, how you were playing for Southampton and the goals you were scoring, I could not make any logical sense as to why you were left out of that World Cup. I can only think, really, that that, that was the only plausible explanation, really, um, given what had happened uh, leading up to that game. You know, I played in the in the B game at Loftus Road. I scored the hat-trick against Russia. Um, you know, I, I couldn't really have done any more to prove myself that evening. But not just that, um, but I, I'd scored a lot of goals um, at the end of that season as well for Southampton. So I finished the season really strong at Southampton and scored the hat-trick at, at Loftus Road. Um, and so to not make it, not not just not make it into the squad of 22 or 23, I think it was, um, but he picked a preliminary score of 30, which went to the manga. Um, uh, and to not get into that squad, I, I found quite strange. Uh, and I kind of, I kind of thought that he's uh, when he when he left me out of the 30, I kind of thought, well, okay, he's going to take. Gaza, he probably doesn't think me and Gaza can be in the same team, be in the same squad, whatever. Um, and then when he when he trimmed the squad down to 23 and, and Gaza wasn't in it either, I was sat at home and I was just like, wow, what what is going on here? Yeah. You know, you've, got, you've left out two players there who can do something on a football pitch that, that none of the players in the other in the rest of the squad could do. And that's not to denigrate the, the players in the rest of the squad because they all had their their strengths as well um, uh, to justify their place in the team. But me and Gaza could do things that the other players couldn't to, to, you know, turn the course of the match. You know, you're talking about Gaza and, and yourself having this ability that no other players had. Uh, you get something different to the team, a creativity, um, an eye for the spectacular, a touch of genius. Glenn Hoddle was the same kind of player in his day. Do you think maybe on some kind of selfish level, um, Hoddle was maybe a little threatened or his legacy felt threatened by yourself and Gaza coming through and maybe having one of these spectacular World Cups? Is there any uh, truth in that at all or, or is it even silly to think it? I must admit, I've always, uh, I've always had a nagging doubt that, that Glenn has always been quite miffed that I was compared to him during my career. I, I think that was that was a bit of an issue, you know, and, and knowing Glenn, obviously he became a manager at Southampton for a season as well, uh, and kind of getting to know the kind of person he was, not, you know, not just the footballer, but the actual bloke he was. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that only kind of strengthens my okay. thought that he did not enjoy other people being put on a par with him. 
That is hugely disappointing. You know, I have to say, even for me listening to that, because you're talking about your childhood hero here. Massively disappointing. Yeah. But I, I, I'm able to, you know, I'm, I'm still able as a rational thinking human being to, to be able to separate the two things. So uh, okay. you know, I, I, whenever people ask me, as I did just now, you know, Glenn Hodder will always be my hero. He will always be my my football idol and the bloke that I wanted to emulate on a football pitch. Um, if you ask me about Glenn Hoddle the person, then my answer is completely different. You, you left behind an incredible legacy. You know, you really have. Um, you know, when they knocked, when they demolished uh, the Dell Stadium, they built apartment complexes and there's the Letitia Court, uh, which is a very nice touch. Um, also, you had an airplane named after you. Yes, yeah, fly B. Um, the uh, yeah, that's probably why they got bust actually. Ah, but to be fair, like yourself, they were great at long range as well. I mean, that was that was quite nice. So I'd, I'd never read. I mean, you know, you grow up as a as a kid just wanting to play football. You never really um, think about other things that might be bestowed yeah. upon you because of your uh, achievements that you have. But uh, yeah, certainly to get a plane named after him wasn't something that I never thought was going to happen. But uh, but again, something that, that kind of makes you pretty proud because it's, it's quite a big deal and you must have done something right in your life to to be able to have that uh, honour bestowed on you. You know, the same with, with the block of flats named after you. Um, you know, I've got the, the freedom of the city. I have an, an honorary degree. I have an honorary doctorate from, from the guys down at Southampton, uh, Southern University. Um, and, you know, it's it's all these lovely things that have, have happened that you never even dream about as a kid. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty cool with my lot. OK, well, there's two other accolades that you failed to mention. Maybe you're too modest to say it. Uh, first one, voted Southampton's greatest ever player. Well, you know, what an honour to, to be held in that high regard by, by the fans. Um, but also, very interestingly, in 2020, so only last year, you were voted by Eurosport just for the younger generation watching this, just to put it into context, you were voted the Premier League's greatest ever player. Now, look, it did raise a few eyebrows, let's be honest. Um, that, I was pretty gobsmacked, to be honest. <laughs> and I thought that my family must have spent a fortune on voting or something. <laughs> but, but yeah, when I, uh, when I saw the other names that were involved, I, I was a bit like, wow, that's, that, that's interesting. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, in terms of in terms of pure footballing ability and, and natural ability, I, I would back myself against most people. You know, other people had perhaps a more professional attitude to the way they looked after themselves during their career um, and the way they they, they kind of kept their bodies in in better shape than I did. Um, but they probably didn't have as much fun as I did. I do see a similarity. You're talking about entertaining the fans. I remember George Best saying this that after he retired, he watches a game of football and it's with great sadness that he sees fans not enjoying themselves. You know, you're talking about, here's people that are working hard all week. They go to the football on a Saturday. Maybe they bring their kids. Um, the camera pans to them and their team is losing maybe. And they're not enjoying themselves. They're not smiling. And this used to break his heart. He very much seen it, um, a responsibility on his own shoulders to entertain the crowd. And I know you felt the same way. Yeah, and that, you know that's that's probably one of the reasons why I, I didn't really win anything in my career in in terms of um, in terms of medals and things, um, because my attitude was um, 
I, I viewed it as an entertainment industry. You know, winning was nice, uh, but it wasn't kind of the be all and end all for me. Uh, and I think that's kind of what what made me a little bit different. And perhaps um, perhaps people thought less of me because of that attitude. You know, that there have been many great quotes and tributes about you down the years. Um, I, I picked out one that I want to share today. And I want to see if you remember who said this. Okay, so for anyone who hasn't heard this, just listen to these words. The man I absolutely loved watching as a kid was Matt Letizia. His extraordinary goals. His talent was out of the norm. He could dribble past seven or eight players, but without speed, he just walked past them. He was sensational. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, Xavi that, that said that. Absolutely. Um, not, not a bad player himself to have that said about you. Uh, no, that was that was amazing. That was uh, that that quote came out, I think, before the 2010 World Cup, and um, and, and I can remember this uh, true story. It came out in in I was in Spain at the time, so I, I was uh, heading to La Manga to play in a golf tournament with a load of uh, of other ex footballers, okay. and, and one of the players, uh, one of the ex footballers that was on the trip was my first manager, Chris Nichol. Okay. Uh, so I can remember being on this uh, on this coach, and uh, the, the newspaper interview had come out, and Javi had said these things about me. And Chris, for the first probably three years of my career, he kind of left me on the bench a lot. Like he just made me the permanent sub, and um, and so I can remember taking the the article and just handing it to Chris and going, "Look at this bloke. He's not bad, and he thinks <laughs> I was good. And you left me on the bench for three years." <laughs> Do you not feel guilty about that now? <laughs> okay, Matt. So when the dust is settled and it's all said and done, how would you, Matt Letizia, like to be remembered? Um, I, I think I'd like to be remembered as, as somebody who fans went to, to go and watch um, and who they, they talk about people who are worth the entrance fee alone. Um, and for me, if I, if I was able to do something on a pitch, which not many other people could do, and get people on the edge of their seats, get people off their seats, uh, and get them with a smile on their face and wanting to applaud and scream at something that I've just done, then that's good enough for me. What a perfect place to leave it. Matt, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your time today uh, and you know the, the incredible memories you've given us as football fans um, you know, you're one of the founding members of the greatest league in the world. So I want to thank you as a fan, and I certainly want to thank you for sharing those memories with me today. Um, okay, so all the best. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon, okay? Thanks, Eugene.